And I will read it to begin. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray for this word. God, we're so thankful that you have authored a book and you've given it to us as a gift. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as we study it, that your spirit would empower our minds to know and comprehend what is beyond knowledge, something that is only possible through you. And I pray for these students Lord, that their hearts would be soft and ready to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I say the word shame, what immediately pops into your head? When I say the word shame, what immediately pops in your head? Don't answer. You can put your hands down. Thank you for raising them. What's in your mind? What comes to your mind? The first thing that pops into my mind, in my head, when I think of shame, is a moment of public embarrassment that I will never get back. I was in the seventh grade in gym class. And in gym class in the seventh grade, we would do different units throughout the year. We would do like basketball for a couple weeks and then football and dodgeball and kickball and you name it, all the different kinds of sports. And then there was one unit that was skating, roller skating. Does anyone else ever do the roller skating unit at your school? That's you, many. So the thing about the skating unit is I had kind of like a love-hate relationship with the skating unit. And it's because we didn't change into gym clothes. And so there's a pro to this and there's a con to this. The pro is that I was never late to class because I never had a rush from the locker room for changing my gym clothes. But the con was that I'm kind of the person who kind of goes hard in gym class. And I would always end up sweaty and then have to walk into my next class and just be gross for the rest of the day. And I did not like that. For us, uh, our uniform was a polo and khaki pants. So it was like, not ideal to be sweating in. <laughs> as it were, in one day in gym class, I went a little bit too hard. And, you know, I was the guy trying to run the hot lap and see how fast I could go around. And one day I decided, okay, I'm going to see if I can jump over this, like, mat on the ground or something. And so I'm skating, skating, skating. And I leap, and I land, and I hear... And I look down, and I look up, and my friend Joe was standing right next to me, and he just bursts into laughter. And immediately, I go, oh, no, this is bad. Look down, there's a huge split in my pants. <laughs> I'm like, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. So I get, like, a sweatshirt or something, you know, I like, cover myself up, run to the office, and get, get changed, get dressed, whatever. But it was a moment that was just, like, horrifying to me like oh my goodness I just ripped my pants in gym class how will I ever recover and when I think of shame that's the story that comes into my mind public embarrassment with no way to hide it and it's interesting because you and I would probably not naturally think of the word shame when it comes to the gospel and yet what's interesting is that as we read our passage tonight Romans 1 16 Paul begins by saying very clearly that he is not ashamed of this gospel. Tonight, we're going to be kicking off a new series called Who Are We? Who Are We? And it's just, we're going to go through six core characteristics of who we are at Redeemer students. 
We're going to be walking through all these different things that I'm super excited to share with you. And tonight, to begin, I could think of no better foundation than the gospel. So my title tonight is Unashamed of the Gospel. If you're taking notes, Unashamed of the Gospel. And I have three different points. What is it? Who is it for? And how does it work? So you can just write number one right now. What is it? What is it? What is this gospel that Paul is unashamed of? The gospel is probably a word that you've heard a lot, especially if you've been around Redeemer students for any time. It's one that saturates our speech, and we long to have it that way. And it is essential to everything that we do here. And it is also, as you will see, the reason why we do everything that we do here. Perhaps what would be helpful is first starting by saying that the gospel is not something that you do, and the gospel is not something that you earn. There is a popular quote that I've heard many times that goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use your words. That is not true. That is not, that quote comes from a misunderstanding of what the gospel is in its nature. The gospel is not an act. It's not an action. It's not something you perform. The gospel is a message. It is a truth. It's not something that can be lived, but it's something that must instead be spoken. The gospel must be spoken. So the question comes, how do you speak it? How do you speak the gospel? How do you communicate the gospel with your words? Many of you students have recently come up from Redeemer Kids, and maybe some of you serve uh, with Pastor Alex on Sunday mornings in Kids. Thank you for your service. Um, and one of the things that we go over a lot in Redeemer Kids is the, the five-step, what is the gospel? So can anyone help me with that? Starts with God rules. What's next? We sin. God provided. Jesus gives. We respond. There we go. Five steps. Really simple. Even a kindergartner can get it. So I know you guys can follow with that. And this is a good and accurate summary of what the gospel is. It communicates each of the core truths that are essential and necessary for us to believe. And the gospel, the gospel message is the solution to Christianity's greatest mystery. What is Christianity's greatest mystery? How could holy God be joined with sinful man? That's the mystery. How can holy God be joined with sinful man? The gospel is the solution to that ministry. God, the Almighty, who spoke the universe into existence by his voice, who upholds all things by the word of his power, who in 2 Thessalonians says that he will destroy the devil by the breath of his mouth, the God who has formed all things, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is seated above burning angels, who is sitting on a throne right now as we speak, being surrounded by hundreds of millions of angels shouting, worthy, worthy, worthy is this God. This is the God that has created all things. And he chose to form creation with his hands, with his words to display how great and mighty his power is. And in his creation, he deemed that mankind, you, student, would be the prize creation of God. God made man unlike any other creature in the entire universe. 
And he made man to live in an intimate relationship with him, in communion, in community, in fellowship with him. But man has turned against God. Mankind rebelled, sinning against the good nature and the favor of God, denying him as Lord, and instead declaring themselves, Adam and Eve, as wise, saying we are better than God, we know more than God. The amazing thing is that God, in his great love, while recognizing the severity of the sin that man committed, chose to enact a plan to redeem the very ones who ran from him without man's request. And he implements this plan through a savior to reconcile God with the sinner. This is the gospel. God longed to love and commune with his creature as he once did. But because he's holy, he cannot tolerate sin or injustice. That's good. In fact, God hates sin, and God hates those who live in sin. Because if God were to love sin, he would be denying his character. He would be compromising his nature. God cannot do that. The problem not only for Adam and Eve then, but also for you and for me, is that God cannot love us unless he deals with this problem of our sin. That was loud. I guess I should go in uh, airplane mode. Good idea. Thank you, Isaiah. (laughs) We're good, we're good. All right, back into it, back into it. The problem is that God must first deal with our sin. There's a theologian who's old and dead, but wrote some really good stuff. His name is John Calvin. He said this, in order to be loved by God, we must first become righteous. Since God regards unrighteousness with hatred, in order for God to love us, in order for God to love you, in order for God to love me, he must first deal with this sin and make us righteous. But the problem is is that we cannot generate this righteousness in us. It must be given by another. And we owe a debt to God that we cannot afford to pay back. It must be paid by another. Unless Christ had himself undertaken a death not due to him, he would have never freed us from the death that was justly due to us. Christ had to take our place. We deserve death because of our sin. And not only earthly death, but spiritual death in hell forever. That is what our sin earns. And although we often gloss over this or we make light of this truth or we pass it by without a second thought, it is essential to know what your sin deserves. And it's essential because without understanding our great need for the gospel, we will never cherish it. We will never care for it. We'll never delight in it. We must recognize that we are desperately in need of the gospel. But the recognition of this need is not one that is fun or enjoyable to make. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's painful, hard, shameful. And this is what Paul was alluding to in verse 16 that I started mentioning earlier, that when we admit that we need the gospel, we are in effect saying, I am not good enough, I am not strong enough, I am not capable, and I do not belong to myself, but God has made me. That is what we have to admit if we are going to receive this gospel. 
These are all humbling, humbling admissions to make because it goes out against everything in our flesh that tells us you are good enough. You can do it. You are strong enough. If you try harder, then you'll do it. That's wrong. The gospel meets us where we're at in our state of need and brings us to Jesus who provides. When we make these claims, we are giving up our lives to receive Christ, but we can say with Paul that we are not ashamed because of what we receive. And this is what the gospel is, the good news that God has made a way through the person of Jesus to reconcile himself to his creation, to you, to me. So with knowledge of the nature, of the substance of the gospel, what is it? What comes next is who is this good news for? Who is it for? Point number two, is it for those who grew up in church? Is it for those who aren't really bad sinners? Is it for those who are indifferent to God and don't really care about him? According to the second part of verse 16, if we look back to our text, it says this, that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Praise God that the gospel of grace, whereby a sinner can be reconciled, made right with God, it's not limited to any social status. It's not limited to any economic status. It's not limited to any political party. The gospel is available to everyone who believes, even each of you. Everyone who believes is a recipient of this gospel. But I want you to follow this text with me before we move on. At the end of verse 16, it says something that's interesting. The gospel is for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Isn't that funny to you? The gospel is for everyone, but it comes in order, comes through a certain person first, and then to the rest of us. Well, I think it's helpful for us to first identify that it's very unlikely that anyone in this room is a, is a Jew, okay? A Jew is someone who descended from ethnic Israel, which I can say with a pretty high certainty, none of you are. I'm a Greek. You very likely are also a Greek in this category. Because Paul is speaking of two types of people that, contain, that are the sum of all humanity. People who descended from Israel and the people who didn't, okay? We're the people who didn't, Okay? But it's funny that this gospel, which is radically inclusive, an offer that goes out to all of mankind, regardless of whatever your social barriers are preventing you from receiving this, we all receive the same reward, salvation, in the gospel, and yet it seems that it's given out in order. Why would this happen? Why does it seem that the Jews are given priority over the Greeks? This is a little deeper. Track with me, okay? We're going to take a little tour, just a brief tour. We have to zoom out to the Old Testament and see what's going on through the canon, through the story of Scripture. The nation of Israel, the Jews, were God's chosen people all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout this book, the first 39 books of the Bible, it is evident over and over and over again that God chose a specific people. This starts in Genesis chapter 3, like page 1, technically page 2 of your Bible. Okay, it's from the beginning that God tells Adam right after he sins that he will send a savior through his offspring to deliver man from the bondage that they have to sin. God revisits this promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, another name you probably know. 
and says, through you I will bless all of the nations of the earth, not just your own. There are promise after promise after promise of this Savior that is coming that will one day come throughout the Old Testament. And this theme continues through every book in the Old Testament, each adding to the color of the picture of who the Savior will be, of what he will do, and what he will be like. Though the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings, through these characters, the image of the Messiah is revealed more and more. He, being descended from Abraham, from Adam, from David, would come to save God's people. And he would do this by perfectly obeying God's law. He would, in obeying, reveal that he is the true and the better prophet, priest, and king. All of these characters that we read about in the Old Testament, while they are important, they are ultimately pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. They were a past shadow of the substance that was to come. And where we see God's grace in all of this, why this is so precious to us, it should be precious to us, is that God, though he very could have easily just chosen one nation to save, which would have been abundant grace in and of itself. He said, no, instead, I'm going to offer this same salvation, not just to one people, but to all people through Jesus, to everyone who believes. And later, here's my proof, later, you can look at this later, Romans chapter 10. You can write that reference down. Romans chapter 10, verse 11 through 13. I'm going to read it. You don't need to turn there. Paul, same author, obviously, says this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Student, do you recognize that this offer is the treasure of all treasures? It is the greatest gift anyone could ever extend to you. Do you know that if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord, you will never be a second-rate citizen in heaven, ever? There will never be a sin that disqualifies you from it. There will never be a failure that makes you less than because of Jesus? Do you know that the sins and failings of your past, your present, and even your future are all atoned for? They're all paid for in Jesus. That's incredible to think about. That is incredible. Do you know that in him, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Do you understand that God has adopted you as his son, as his daughter, through Jesus? And you belong to him. You are part of his family now. Not because you have earned it, but because Christ has earned it for you. 1 John 4.10 says this, Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and gave himself up for us. The joy of Christ earning it for you, that God loved us first, is that this work is finished. If our salvation was dependent upon our commitment, if it was dependent on our faithfulness, we'd all be doomed. There'd be no way that you are able to maintain faithfulness throughout your life, let alone for a week or a day. But because it is firmly established in the work of Jesus Christ, it is perfect, it is complete, and it will endure forever. Your status before God, if you trust in Jesus, is fixed permanently. 
This is precious. And this identifies who the gospel is for. The gospel is for sinners. It is for sinners from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Sinners who admit their need of saving, and they confess that Jesus is the only one who can do it. Jesus is the only one. Last point, number three. What does it do? What does this gospel do? Well, look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This righteousness that is given by God comes by faith. We do not receive this by working. We receive this by faith, by trusting. But this is not a one-time deal. I think we often forget that. Christian, it's easy to hear the word gospel and think, that's for unbelievers. The gospel is not for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers just as well, just as much. Because the same faith that saves you is the faith that grows throughout your life that the Lord will use to continue to increase your communion with him throughout your days. This faith is not to remain stagnant. When the man in Mark 9.24 cried out for Jesus to save his child, saying this well-known quote, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Anyone of you ever prayed that before? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He is, this man is admitting, I trust Jesus, ultimately, I need help being confident that I trust in Jesus. Right? That is still saving faith. That is faith that trusts in the person of Jesus Christ. The object of Christ, when our faith is placed in him, it is secure. But yet this man knows that his faith must grow. Just as yours, student, ought to grow. Many of you students genuinely trust in Christ as your Savior. But the gift of faith that God has given you must grow. It ought to grow. Knowledge of your God, knowledge of your sin, and knowledge of how you can be reconciled to him are essential components to first being saved, but then also to remembering why you are called to live a life that looks different from the rest of the world. The gospel is our fuel in life to live different than the rest of the world. Here's the truth, student. Without the backbone of the gospel, without this framework in your mind, you will have no spiritual power in your life. Without a strong grasp on the knowledge and nature of God's forgiveness, that it is permanent, unending to all who trust in him, that it will never waver according to your sin, that it will never It's always completely independent of your performance, your experience, and your emotions. Without this understanding, you will never have the power that the gospel provides to confess your sin. Why do I say that? Let me ask you a question. Would you share your deepest, darkest secret with a total stranger? No. No. Would you share something, this is rhetorical, that can compromise... Your name, your reputation, that could estrange your friends from you, that could heap shame upon your head. Would you share this information with just anyone? No. No, you wouldn't. And maybe some of you are thinking of a specific sin or a moment in your life right now which you just think, if I share this with anyone, they could not possibly care for me. This is a hard 
thing to deal with. Because we all have this internal desire. We actually have two internal desires. Every single one of us. To be known and to be loved. We all have the desire within our hearts. We all want to be known and we all want to be loved. But the problem is, is that in our human relationships, we can only ever seem to find one of these. We can only ever seem to have someone who knows a lot about us, but because they know a lot about us, they don't really like us that much. Or someone who really admires and appreciates us, but the only reason that they appreciate us is because they don't know the things that we've done or the person that we really are on the inside. These people, we feel like they can't know what they've done because if they won't, if they do, they will not possibly be able to love me. And student, this is where the gospel of Jesus is so amazing. It's so amazing that this God who has created all things, who has formed the universe by the word of his power, knows you. He knows every sin that you've ever committed. He knows every thought that is sinful that you've ever had. He knows every evil intention of your heart. He knows everything. Hebrews 4 is very clear. God sees all things and all things before him are naked and bare before his eyes. There's nothing that goes past God. And yet the amazing thing is that through the gospel, he loves you. Through Jesus, he loves you. He loves you as much as anything in the universe. And he loves you in the same way, get this, in the same proportion as he loves his son Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Just let that blow your mind. That you, a sinner, can be loved by God the Father to the same degree that God the Father loves the Son. To the very same degree. Nothing is lacking in that. Why? How? It's because when we trust in Jesus by faith, we are joined to Jesus. We become co-heir with him. We are joined as one entity with Jesus. And so when God looks at our account, which is bankrupt because of our sin, he doesn't see a negative balance, but he sees riches because of his son, Jesus Christ, who has given it to you through faith. He loves you because of the work of his son. And because we are joined with his son by faith, we will never be separated from him. And this is what the gospel does It is the only way that complete restoration is possible. It is the only way that an ugly, wicked, and hateful sinner could be unified with a beautiful and holy and loving God. It's the only way. That is why Paul is unashamed of this gospel. And that's why you should be too. So what does this look like? What does it look like to be unashamed of the gospel Junior higher, high schooler, junior higher, this is what it looks like. Trust Jesus. Know that he loves you. And then in Christ, he does so completely. Be willing to share in your small group, not just what you did this week, but the things that you struggled with. Be willing to admit that you are a sinner. Because I can assure you, when your leaders hear it, they will not be surprised. We've all sinned. But we must first confess sin if we desire to seek reconciliation, forgiveness. Junior higher, seek to be a friend that learns about others and yet still loves them. 
Loves them because God has created them. Not based on whether they like video games too or they like sports or they like theater. Not because they are cool or will give you a popularity boost. Love them because Jesus has first loved you. High schooler, what does this look like for you? Trust Jesus. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. In him, every single one of your darkest stains are washed clean. Your blemishes are removed. Your sins are forgiven in the person of Jesus. Fight the social pressure to use your peers to your advantage. Through the spirit, fight the urge to gossip and tear others down. And instead, remember that you are being built together as God's holy temple. That's what Pastor John preached on on Sunday, Ephesians 2. That you... All of you who trust in Jesus are actually being joined together with every other believer in the entire world who has ever lived and will ever live into a temple to bring God glory. And this temple is not contained with your group of six friends. This temple includes people everywhere from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And because of that, because we know the future reconciliation, the restoration of all people in Jesus coming together as one, we are given the freedom to love people who are very unlike us because we are united by the gospel. These believers that will be joined together in this temple, some of them aren't even saved yet. Have you ever thought about that? Some of them don't even know Jesus yet. And that is why we must be bold unapologetic and unashamed to share the gospel. Junior higher too. You may be younger. It's a simple gospel. We already went over that a, thir- a three-year-old can get it, okay? It's not about knowledge of the question or being able to explain every last detail about the Bible. It's about being willing. It's about saying, I don't know very much about God, but I know that you need him just like I do, and I want you to experience him just like I have. That's it. That's the gospel. And the gospel should be on our speech, should be in our minds, it should be in our thoughts, it should frame everything about what we do, not just on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, because the gospel in our lives transforms everything. Listen to this quote. When we first taste the gospel, we indeed see God's smiling countenance turned towards us, but at a distance. When we first receive Jesus... For the first time, we see that God loves us through Jesus. But it's at a distance because we don't know him well. The more knowledge of true religion grows in us by coming as it were near, we behold God's favor more clearly and more familiarly. And that is a precious truth. That the more you grow in your knowledge and understanding of this word and of this gospel, the more near you will recognize that you are to God and the less hindrance you will see in the way of him. And this is the power that changes lives. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your gospel. We do not deserve.